0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Provincial equalization payments have been a sore point of contention for decades. Justin Trudeau apologized for handling a young woman reporter years ago. If German Chancellor Angela Merkel's time as the most powerful Euro leader is coming to a rapid conclusion... How much does it have to do with the sanctioned entry into Germany by up to a million migrants? I'm Roy Green, and this is the Roy Green Show podcast.
1: Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to
0: the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. My first guest is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, Me as well. Now, the, the issue of the equalization payments, did it catch you completely by surprise when Mr. Morneau um extended the current formula for another five years
2: we, we were aware of the federal government uh, as they had indicated the finance ministers that they were they were uh, uh leading towards uh, uh, um uh, proposing uh something around the status quo as we move forward our, our finance minister uh, the honorable Donna Har- Harpower, voiced her her objections to that and and that's when we really started discussing about you know how do we raise this discussion across the nation how do we how do we raise this discussion so that we can talk about it from from coast to coast to coast if you will and have a have a mature dialogue about what this formula should look like into the future and and can we come up with a better uh, you know, some improvements to it. And, and we knew people would ask us, uh, you know, what's the use Saskatchewan? Well, we, so we put a proposal on the table, and we want to start, uh, start the dialogue uh, with respect to where we go with this formula into the future.
0: Premier, what uh, in layman's terminology, what is the formula currently? What does it consist of? And what is Saskatchewan proposing?
2: But what it currently what it consists of is a is a formula that cuts hydro out of hydro power, out of hydro revenues. Pardon me, out of uh, out of the uh, the capacity of any province's uh, wealth, if you will. What we're proposing is uh, you know rather than deep into dig into the details of the formula, where if you change A, it affects B, C, and D, is uh, leave the formula alone. Take half of the nineteen billion dollars of revenues, uh, disperse them just as you would. Um, under the current formula, take the other half of the revenues, disperse them on a per capita basis, like we disperse health and social uh, funding here in in the nation of Canada. This isn't foreign to us in, in, in provinces or across across the, across the nation, and uh, it would ensure that that all provinces would receive a little bit. I'd also put forward that this isn't a windfall in any way for, for Saskatchewan. We put this forward to start this discussion uh, across the nation. We'd still be a half province under, under this formula, contributing more than what we would take.
0: You know, there's never a shortage of opinion when it comes to equalization payments, and what I've heard from a lot of people over the years is that maybe there should be no equalization payments? Maybe the provinces that are short on income or short on money should be more inventive and find better ways to generate their own funds, and not look to uh, to so-called have provinces. Have the have provinces maybe pay more in taxes, which is probably going to happen anyway, and then uh, and then take it from there.
2: Yeah, and that would be another suggestion. I think that some some may put forward. You know, I, I'm not positive that that we would actually support that suggestion out of Saskatchewan. We talked to some people, but uh, and it would benefit us greatly, um, you, you know, being a net contributor. But we still are. We still are Canadians first, and and what we're saying is we should have a a mature conversation about this formula. About uh, you know we have we have one province that has received over half of the funding uh, since since the inception of this formula. Over 60% just this past year, a province that advocated uh, very uh, uh, ferociously against a, a significant piece of infrastructure that would benefit the nation and a number of other provinces in Energy East. And, and so, you know, we we have uh, this formula in place benefiting uh, those hydro provinces, and we have some of those provinces now uh, attempting to really hold up our ability to not only get our resources uh, to markets all around the world, but our ability to get our resources to uh, to a place where we can add value to them, like New Brunswick in the case of Energy East, and sell that product that we're still utilizing here in Canada to Canadians.
0: Well, we're talking about the province of Quebec, which, uh, under the then-municipal leadership of Denis Cader, who was the mayor of Montreal, uh, argued vociferously, and in fact refused to accept any notion that Energy East would uh, make its way through the greater Montreal area, and he argued that it provided nothing in the way of real economic benefit to the province of Quebec. Meanwhile, as you say, Quebec has, or you didn't mention Quebec, but I have, they, uh, they, they, are, they have been very, very, very fortunate at the receiving end of equalization payments, and I saw in one of your tweets 60 to $80 billion. Is that, is that one year?
2: Eleven point seven this last year, which is over sixty percent of the yeah. of, of the nineteen billion dollar formula. About a hundred billion dollars over the last eleven years it went to that province. Okay. By contrast, um, by contrast, you could look at a province that has seen a downturn in in uh, in their natural resource revenues and jobs, and is now experiencing, I think, in the neighborhood of about a fourteen percent unemployment rate, and that's Newfoundland and Labrador. They collected zero from this formula last year, and so we're, we're saying. We should have that discussion about whether or not that's correct.
0: Now, how much willingness is there on the part of other premiers, and how much willingness do you think there might be on the part of the current federal government to have that discussion or participate in the discussion, particularly since the finance minister announced the current formula will continue for another five years?
2: there is a willingness uh, to have this discussion across the nation, and not necessarily the formula that we put forward, but the fairness of of this formula to to Canadians, and is there an opportunity for us to to make some changes that that ensures that it's it's more fair to more Canadians? Uh, The federal government, they would slipped this into, I think, page 317 of their 500-plus page bill, uh, budget bill that they put forward here uh, uh, this summer. So they've said, that uh, you know the decision is done well they can answer uh, you know to Canadians uh, with respect to the decisions uh, that they made it doesn't discount the importance of the discussion that we need to have here and uh, and uh, you know across the nation there is an opportunity for us to improve on this formula to improve on it in cases of, of uh, you know for instance in, in Newfoundland and Labrador where where I think if this formula was uh, was uh, changed to be more reactive I think Newfoundland and Labrador uh, people that have lost their job would be appreciative of that.
0: If there's no change in the formula, how does that? How will that affect your province, the province of Saskatchewan, over the next five years?
2: I will continue to contribute uh, about six hundred million dollars to the formula each and every year and uh, and collect uh, no dollars from that and th- this this um it compiles a little bit and maybe what what instigates some of this discussion is some of the challenges we're having with those very same um revenue items for and an econ- economic generating items uh, here in western canada that are that are included in in the equalization formula and now we're facing a number of other headwinds um, some of them from our federal government uh, in the way of a carbon tax but some of them uh, headwinds just in having the opportunity to get those products, uh, you know, to market. In ours, our our province, uh, not not a large province one one million one hundred seventy one thousand people. We export to over one hundred and fifty countries each and every year. In order to do that, we need to continue to have access to our coastline, in the way of of uh, pipelines, in the way of rail infrastructure, in the way of the opportunity to access our ports, and and we're facing headwinds in in some of these other areas, which is making it very very. Uh, challenging to to defend the the, the contribution of six hundred million dollars to to this to this formula when when you look at how it is it is being dispersed uh, uh, somewhat unfairly across the nation.
0: Well, it's a an, it's an egregious attack on, uh, on on our national sense of well-being, and our national well-being period when one province, again the province of Quebec, steps up and says we are not going to permit, and the prime minister did nothing about it. Uh, we're, going to do, we're not going to permit the Energy East pipeline to uh, extend through Quebec into, uh, into New Brunswick, where it should have gone. And in the absence of the Energy East pipeline, the, the, the refineries in eastern Canada are now importing 700,000 barrels of foreign oil every day so they can remain active. The, the picture would be fundamentally flawed to a four-year-old
2: right and and, and if, you tr- if you truly care about labor standards and you look at where that, that energy product is coming in from, uh, we should re- we should have the discussion about the, we should rediscuss energy. If you truly care about yeah. the economic opportunities, some of it in, in places like New Brunswick and and Western Canada, where where there are challenges right now and, and the opportunity to access our Canadian markets and add value to that Western Canadian uh, sustainable energy product I would put forward as well. Um, you should look at it. We should relook at energy east. Energy. And if you truly care about the environment, if we truly want to make an impact on on emissions, um, we we should look at the environmental regulations that that this energy product is being produced, uh, how it is being produced in Western Canada, and how the product that we're importing is being produced in places like Venezuela, Algeria, Saudi Arabia. And if you truly want to make an impact on emissions reductions, we should be utilizing these Western Canadian products products because of the way that we that we extract them in, in a sustainable and way as is, uh, is anywhere around the world and, and and we should
0: care about that as Canadians. We should.
1: Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show Podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcast or Google Play.
0: And Premier Moe, now you have Doug Ford as an ally who was elected by the uh, people of Ontario. We have to keep reminding Certain individuals that he was elected by the people of Ontario, Mr. Ford is committed to standing beside Saskatchewan in the battle against the carbon tax, and Jason Kenney has committed the same if he's elected Premier of Alberta in just a few months' time. So, uh, how do you assess all of this?
2: Well, I think it's uh, I think it's indicative of when people actually start having to pay this tax on their on their hydro bills, on their fuel. Uh, their fuel as they fuel up their vehicles uh, you, it's one thing to virtue signal that you want to uh you know reduce your carbon emissions uh you want to you know help the environment it's another it's another thing from an economic perspective to actually start uh paying the bill of a of a you know what i call a flawed policy cap and trade carbon tax uh, you you pick the policy um for, for, and, and, and then start to realize that, that these policies actually don't work. They actually don't reduce emissions. They haven't done it around the world. I don't know why we would expect that, that that would occur here in Canada. And we have people talking about, well, if you want to help the environment, you need to pay a carbon tax. No, if, if you want to feel um, you know a little bit better about your conscience, you could pay up a carbon tax, but it actually doesn't work. And, and nowhere is that more evident, and I speak about Saskatchewan all the time, but nowhere is that more evident. The investment in actual emission reductions in, in our nation than in, in the province of Ontario, right or wrong on on you know what the, the cost was to to shift the uh, the electrical generation uh, environment in Ontario, it happened, and and that should be recognized. The, the, the federal government shouldn't be looking at imposing a backstop, uh, because uh, because uh, Premier Elect Ford is making a decision on behalf of uh, of Ontarians in reducing taxes uh, to ensure that it can be affordable for, for everyone to live there.
0: Well, clearly the uh, the federal government and uh, its allies are panicked by the fact that Doug Ford was elected and now is going to oppose and is opposing the carbon tax uh, project and will be joined by, again, by Jason Kennedy if he becomes the premier of Alberta because that, that's three significant provinces and three significant provinces pretty much sews it up, I would think.
2: Well, I think it's Canadians coming to the realization that it's a flawed policy that, that at the end of the day costs cost Canadians money, uh, costs us uh, jobs uh, in many communities as, as we move some of our export-related jobs out of Canada, because right. they can't compete with, with this tax, among other taxes uh, that are changing as we move forward, among regulations, non-tax items that are changing as we move forward, and, and I, I, I commend uh, Premier-elect Ford for campaigning on this, running on this, and and I think the people of Ontario, like many people across Canada, are starting to realize that that this this, this is a this is a payment that we will have to make, and yeah. it actually doesn't work. It doesn't reduce the.
1: The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today.
0: Just to repeat what you're suggesting, Premier, as far as a an equalization payment change, uh, and I'm quoting from Global News. In his proposal, Premier Mo calls for what he describes as a 50-50 formula. This would use the same revenue sources like non-renewable resource and revenue to determine the fiscal capacity of each province. Half of the collected money would be distributed in the same manner it is now. The other half would be distributed on a per capita basis relative to all the other provinces. Uh, The Premier said this would ensure all provinces receive at least some equalization funding. Makes sense. What what reaction have you had from uh, the people in Saskatchewan?
2: Well, the people in Saskatchewan, like I like I said, are, are looking at at some of the the resource revenues that are being included in in the calculation of this formula, and there's there's frustration that's building because they see the funds of this formula being uh, funneled in many ways uh, to, to to a few certain areas of, of the of the nation, in particular, uh, about sixty percent of, of the uh, funds going to one province in the nation, and then we turn around. And have that very same province, uh, you, you know, um, being being very uh, uh, adamant about uh, infrastructure projects not not happening not happening in our nation that would help uh, Western Canada access uh, not only the Canadian markets but but some export markets around the world as well. And this growing sense of frustration is what we've heard as we've traveled across the province. And uh, we wanted to put forward a formula to start this conversation, and we we thought we would make it very simple so the people of Canada can understand it. And let's start talking about how we can make it better for more Canadians.
0: And back to the carbon tax issue, uh, as we've said, uh, Doug Ford is on Saskatchewan's side, the premier-elect in Ontario. And uh, have you spoken with Premier-elect Ford about this yet?
2: Yeah, absolutely we have. Yeah, we've spoken and we're in in alignment on the, the ineffectiveness of this tax with respect to the environment. And the, uh, the the detrimental effects that this tax would have on, on both people in Ontario and Saskatchewan if the if the federal backstop was ever implemented. So, well, you know, the federal government should should rethink that. They should rethink implementing the uh, the backstop on provinces. Uh, in particular, at this time when you have provinces that are that are uh, you know adamantly trying to uh, help our federal government get through uh, trade agreements, most notably the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, we're adamantly trying to access other markets for our products as we start to uh, to look to other areas of the world, if you will, to to dilute our our trade dependency on the U.S. and in, in Saskatchewan, it's significant. Over half of our products do end up in the U.S., and, and I think Ontario would be be all of that,
0: Premier. About the issue of tariffs and trade and equitable trade and the unpredictability of perhaps uh, of President uh, Trump. Who has pointed out? Look, I said I was going to make America great again, not Canada. But at the at the same time, he and his country do benefit from the relationship with Canada and with Canadian trade. What do you make of what's going on now? And uh, what would your what's your re, what's your reaction to Mr. Trump's challenges well, to this country?
2: Well, Mr. Trump is the president of the USA, so that, that is who he rep- represents. And we have a prime minister in this nation. We also have subnational leaders. We'll have premier-elect Ford, uh, myself, uh, other other premiers across the nation that uh, can do work as well. And I've been down to the U.S. Uh, a couple of times since uh, I've been elected into this position. I'm heading again on Monday down to the national governor's meeting in Rapid City to, to further uh, foster those relationships with uh, subnational leaders in the U.S. to ensure that that we can advocate on on who we represent here in, in, in our province of Saskatchewan, but in the nation of Canada as well, of, of the benefits of, of, of the NAFTA agreement over the last two and a half decades. Yes, it needs to be modernized. Um, But we do need to continue with uh, some degree of uh, a fair trade agreement here in North America, as I think there's other areas of the world that, uh, you know, greatly uh, admire what we have had here the last two and a half decades. I know Premier-elect Ford will be a great advocate of uh, of trade, uh, in particular with the U.S. as well. Minister Freeland's office and, and our trade negotiators have, have been engaged all along, and they need to continue to be engaged. And I would say that our Prime Minister needs to uh, to step up his engagement as well. And I, I think our federal government, this is the most important uh, thing, uh, the most important item that we have as we go forward through the next number of weeks and months is this, this trade agreement, our most important trade agreement. And when we wake up each and every morning, we should ask ourselves, how can we further engage with President Trump's administration, get closer to a a, a, re, uh, a modernized NAFTA deal, and make every step uh, towards that that we can? We need all hands on deck, and that includes our Prime Minister.
0: Absolutely. And listen to what Donald Trump says. If you don't, even if you don't like him, listen to what he says, because he is the president of the United States. He has tremendous power and influence over what happens in the United States, and whatever happens in the United States affects us in Canada. So if anybody's a strident anti-Trump, person. Set that aside if and be objective about what's best for Canada ultimately at the end of the day. Mr. Mister Moe, thank you so much. Premier, I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you.
1: Anytime, right? You have a great
2: weekend.
0: And you too. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast
1: hosted by Roy Green, which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play.
0: Justin Trudeau apologized for handling a young woman reporter years ago. Now there are calls for Trudeau to be held accountable. My guests are Ishmael Darrow and Michelle Simpson. Good to have you with us. Thanks for the time, Ishmael. Thanks for having me on. What got you... Hi, hi Michelle.
3: Hi, Roy. And can I say it's a pleasure meeting you on the radio, Ishmael.
4: Thank you, Michelle.
0: Ishmael, what got you interested in this story, which has been around for a little while?
4: So what interested us at BuzzFeed is that You know, we often follow trends on social media. That's where we find a lot of our stories because that's how people talk about the things that matter to them these days. And we saw that on social media. There was just an absolute firestorm over a uh, photo of this old newspaper column that was tweeted out by Warren Kinsella, the political strategist. And everyone was sort of discussing it obliquely, but it seemed like there wasn't a lot of reporting on it. And these are fairly explosive allegations about the sitting prime minister, especially given his record on these issues. So we dug in, you know, I called the newspaper and I talked to them and they confirmed the column was real. And then I tried to get a copy of it from the local archive and library and museum. And then we went to the prime minister's office and said, you know, given the prime minister's statements on sexual harassment and, and, you know, the fact that it's a cornerstone of his political career and political image, what does he have to say about these allegations that were aired many years before he was a real public figure? And that's when they gave us that statement.
0: And the statement was that, uh, he, he, the, that he did, quote, not recall any negative interactions. What, ex- what does that mean?
4: Well, that's right. You said it. Um, he remembers being in Creston, which is uh, where this little newspaper is uh, located. Uh, but he doesn't think he had any negative interactions there. So he's not necessarily saying he doesn't remember and he's not denying it. He just simply says, I remember being there, and I don't think anything weird happened. I don't Admittedly. think.
0: And yet, let me, just, let me just finish this, Michelle, and then I, I really want to hear what you have to say. But I just want to quote uh, the prime minister and his apology to that reporter that was made the day after the, uh, the incident. I'm sorry. If I had known you were reporting for a national paper, I never would have been so forward. Quote, end quote. Michelle.
3: So that leaves the rest of us where? You know, he's apologizing because it was a reporter. And that was before all of this firestorm started. But that said, you know, were the rest of us fair game? Well, what? You know. If you're not a reporter, in his book... Oh, I
0: see what you mean, yeah.
3: Yeah, you must be fair game.
0: Yeah, that, uh, Ishmael, that uh, that apology is very qualified. Mm-hmm.
4: That's true. Um, but however, you know, as strange as it might sound, we now know uh, the National Post just reported uh, yesterday that that editorial, w- which is unsigned, was in fact written by the reporter who had this uh, interaction with Mr. Trudeau. So, you know, assuming that she had no reason to make any of this up, uh, which I don't think she would have, um, she is recalling what she says Mr. Trudeau told her. So um, and the fact that it it, that's the version that she is giving us, I think um, that phrasing is quite strange And, and it's it's really worth, I think, pushing the prime minister's office respond to this a little more fully I'm not sure that we've fully gotten a satisfying answer on this episode
0: did you have an opportunity to speak to any witnesses who were at that event
4: Um, so in our reporting we reached out to the newspaper and we tried to find original staff um, but they either could not be tracked down or they were unwilling to speak to us and the reporter who we did not name but we did find her uh, we also contacted her, we left numerous messages, and I'm sorry for harassing her, but we really wanted to get her side of this. And she also has evidently decided that she doesn't want anything to do with this anymore. It was a, a while ago, I can see why she might want to stay out of the spotlight. But we did really want to get to the bottom of this, um, but people, you know, it was a while ago, and people just generally didn't really want to talk.
0: Well, you know, we live in the era, the era of Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Charlie Rose... They uh, their transgressions in many cases took place years ago, and and then more recently, but it began many years ago. So there's no reason for anyone to be excused, and uh, this qualified response from the prime minister's office speaks volumes to me, Michelle. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think they're panicking at the PMO, or what? What do you think is going on?
3: I, th- you know, I don't know that they're panicking. I think they can. They think. They can manage it, Um, and that may be the case because he's the prime minister, but they're relying on that. Oh, this was 18 years ago, and now he's the PM, but Justin seems to think he's above everyone else.
0: And he voluntarily put on the mantle, the cloak of feminism, and yep. he's been speaking out very strongly against sexually inappropriate behavior. He's made that his personal issue from one of it certainly one of his most significant personal issues. And he now, I think, has the responsibility to step forward and say, "This is what happened. This is what I recall, not ask the uh, not ask his his press secretary, to say that, uh, where is is it here now, Um, can't recall anything negative happening or significantly, I can't recall any negative interactions. That's not nearly good enough. Where do you go with this now, Ishmael?
4: Well, so so that's the question. And I just want to circle back to the point you were making about all these cases that we've heard in Hollywood and in other industries. Um, Obviously, some of those cases are very egregious. Some of them are are of different severity. But we are in an era where we expect a certain level of accountability of public figures. And I just want to turn to what the prime minister himself said earlier this year in an interview with CBC. He was asked whether there might be any instances in his past where women might think that he crossed some sort of barrier, some boundary, either knowingly or unknowingly. And he said, no, he didn't think that was the case. And he also said that um, people have a responsibility for uh, for their own actions, no matter how long ago. Yeah. So we we both live in an era where this is being treated differently. I think, rightfully so. And also, the prime minister's own words uh, say that you know this is something that he needs to address. And I'm uh, puzzled, actually, why he has so far been um, not pressed on this more.
0: Yeah, I think there are people who believe that he should not this should not be raised because it happened a long time ago, because he's Justin Trudeau, and for whatever number of reasons yeah. you have individually, but it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. No. It's his responsibility. This has been written about, talked about, and he's commented on it by way of his press secretary. I agree. So? I,
3: I, you know, there can't be two standards, because he's taking a strong stance, against members of his own caucus. Yeah. So, you know, he's kicked them out of caucus. He's demoted them um, for various transgressions with respect to sexual harassment. And, um, you know, if you live by this sword, you die by this sword.
0: Very true. What kind of response have you had, Ishmael, to the story? What, uh, what have your readers and followers of BuzzFeed had to say?
4: I've had two different kinds of responses. On the one hand, I've had people reaching out and, and, and congratulating me and saying, this is great, we're going to get them out of office now. And I've had to respond to those people and say, that's fine if you feel that way, but that's not really what my role here was as a reporter, and that's not generally what we think of as our role being in the media. Uh, This is clearly of public importance, and that's why this is a story. So I've had to disappoint those people. And the other response is that I've gotten a fair amount of doubt. People who, like the prime minister, who probably voted for his party, have reached out to me and said, oh, come on, this is old, you know, water under the bridge, this happened so long ago, even if it happened, you know, so what? Trump is so much worse, you know. There's been a lot of um, that kind of response. And to those people, respectfully, I, I just go back to what the prime minister has said himself, and the way, as Michelle was just saying, the way he has treated this issue when it's come up with other people in his party. Yeah.
0: And he also said he has been very, very careful about how he has interacted with women uh, his entire life. And that was part of his, the, the statement that you were quoting, Ishmael, that the end of that was I've been very careful. I'm paraphrasing, but I've been very careful about how I've handled myself uh, around women all of my life. so is is this going to uh, is this a story that has do you think is going to develop legs or is it just going to sort of stutter and fade away?
4: Well, that is a, a very good question. I was very surprised on the day and I, in fact the day after this uh, blew up on the internet and clearly most reporters in Canada who follow politics and report on politics were aware of these these allegations and this newspaper column that had resurfaced. He had a press conference that day and a huge uh, scrum of reporters was asking him questions and it didn't come up. And I, I find that very curious. I know we have different standards in Canada for when we can publish and, and, and we, we don't necessarily have the exact same standards that they do in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But this seemed to me like something worth pressing the prime minister on when given the opportunity that day. And now we've seen some reporting from the National Post, as I mentioned, and it, I do think it's going to come up. But until there's a fuller reckoning uh, on the prime minister's part i think this is just going to fester unfortunately and i think it's, it the most responsible thing would be to simply deal with it and perhaps either to de- deny it or or say that there is some truth to it and, yeah. and be truthful with with the canadian public exactly
1: visit apple podcasts or google play now and sign up for the roy green show podcast 100% free
0: 100% roy is migrant crime the single greatest and unreported issue. Here's Professor Cheryl Bernard. So what, how do you interpret what's going on in in Germany and in Europe at the moment, with the Chancellor of Germany in danger of losing her job, and it seems to cycle back to this whole issue of borders open, migrants in, and criminal activity taking place that politicians and police officials turn a blind eye to? So
5: it's a big deal for Angela Merkel, but beyond that, it's, a big deal for Europe, too, because maybe we'll have time to get into that briefly. But beyond Germany, this is creating major rifts across Europe as well, as countries and governments line align up differently on the issue. So um, it's good that you, that you uh, started in with the crime wave topic, because in a sense, this crisis, again, was launched by one of those, by one of those incidents. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the case of Susanna Feldman, this is a 14-year-old girl who uh, very, very recently was found raped and murdered near a refugee center in Germany, and it was then traced to an Iraqi, in this case, uh, refugee, and by the time the police tried to find him, he had fled with false documents back to Iraq. I'm, I'm, you probably read about it. And I did, the, yes. The Iraqi yes. government or the Kurdish government extradited him back to Germany, but the interesting or terrible thing about this case that has Germany particularly riled up is that he arrived in 2015 with the major wave of refugees. In 2016, his asylum request was rejected, but he has stayed on, and he was still here in 2018 to murder this young girl. So the Germans are asking, how is this possible? Not only that, but in the years that he was here, that wasn't the only thing he did. He attacked a policewoman. He was involved in some armed robberies and he was accused of raping an 11-year-old refugee girl in the refugee center where he lived. So they're going, how how can this be? And how can our inefficiency of operations and our willingness to let people stay on and appeal and appeal again and appeal again, even when there's no grounds for it, how can this put our own citizenry in danger? So this is at the crux of it, because her interior minister, as you rightly say, is saying, okay, no, we have to have a much clearer uh, policy, and when somebody isn't eligible, they have to be sent away from Germany right away. Angela Merkel is saying, well, sure, yes, but we need a European-wide agreement on this. And then again, someone like Seehofer, the interior minister will reply, well, you've had years to do that, and it apparently isn't happening, and the cost is too high. So that's where we we are in Germany right now.
0: And think about the original picture in 2015. As the refugee trains arrived, and there were the Germans, as you point out in your column, there were the Germans holding up signs, welcome refugees. And there were, it, right. it seemed like it was going to, well, it seemed like it might work. But I, my feeling was these are people, uh, the refugees who, in, or, or migrants, who probably had, uh, for the most part, had, had had experienced very difficult times in the countries they were in. They were now somewhere where they didn't speak the language, or they didn't know the customs, they didn't appreciate what they what they encountered, because it went contrary to their, to their uh, to their own country's um, uh, character, or if you will, their their belief system. And then, over a period of months, the dominoes started to drop, and they started to realize they could they were getting away with it because the politicians and the police didn't want to get involved, they didn't want to be seen as being anti-refugee. And the right. situation spiraled out of control. It wasn't just, as you say, it wasn't just Germany. It wasn't just Austria. It was, it was. Uh, you, you write about Sweden and other countries where the same sort of situation was taking place, where where, where women were being s- systematically raped and no, nothing was being done about it.
5: That's right. So initially, in the very, very beginning, the assumption was, well, these are all Syrian refugees, and they're fleeing from a war zone. And this is a limited population, even though it, the numbers may be relatively large, but still... It's, it's a limited situation, and we can do it, as Angela Merkel said. But it became clear very, very soon that, A, the way in which this was unfolding was much too fast and much too chaotic, and you didn't really know who was coming in, and you had no way of vetting them or, or, or processing this appropriately. So that should have been your first red flag when action should have been taken. And then secondly, it became very obvious very soon that, in fact, the majority of these people were not Syrian refugees and indeed were not refugees at all but were what, you know, the German term now is like economic refugees. They were just leaving countries where they didn't like to be for whatever reason. So they were sort of migrants, which is a very different uh, circumstance altogether. And then it's just taken far too long for the Europeans to react to this and, and to realize that this was a, a situation of
1: grave peril. Hit up Apple Podcast or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you
0: want, when you want it. Dr. Cheryl Bernard was the program director of the Initiative for Middle Eastern Youth and the Alternative Strategies Initiative within the RAND Corporation's National Security Research Division. Her publications include that Civil Democratic Islam, uh, Building Moderate Muslim Networks, The Muslim World After 9-11, The Battle Behind the Wire, U.S. Prisoner and Detainee Operations, and Euro-Jihad, Patterns of Islamist Radicalization and Terrorism in Europe. And again, Civil Democratic Islam was one of the books found in Osama bin Laden's library during the raid on his compound by American Special Forces. Professor Bernard, let's talk about, or please explain to us, what is the impact then on the rest of Europe? If the crisis, the center of the crisis is in Germany and Austria, and in that particular region of of Europe, although Italy, just last week or two weeks ago, denied the, the landing of a refugee ship in any of its ports and they moved on to Spain. What is the what's the fallout in the rest of, of Western Europe? Well man, all of Europe. So
5: one, right right. So one thing that probably even, you know, many of your Canadian tourists have noticed when they visit Europe is the Schengen is gone for now. It's supposedly suspended. Will it ever come in again? The free movement across borders between uh between the EU countries? Who knows? But it's Definitely gone for now, and that's a major loss. Then you have, you know, huge risks emerging among the European states. As you say, Italy has already announced that they've had enough of this and they're not taking any more refugees in, and they're not on board. They're even saying that they're not sure they're going to go to any more EU summits on this topic because all it ever produces is another piece of paper. Then you have uh, Hungary, which is taking the lead among the Eastern European EU states. So they've got. Um, They've got Slovakia, the Czech Republic, um, and Poland behind them on a similar hardline stance against the position of Germany. And then there's Austria, which is lining up with Hungary, and also this is important, lining up with Bavaria, which of course is part of Germany, against the stance of uh, of, of Angela Merkel. So the the fracture lines are are very strongly visible.
0: And where is this? leading. I have uh, i mean, we, we hear that some European countries are encouraging migrants to leave. Some of them are paying migrants to leave. Um, but clearly, there's been a tremendous influx of people into Western Europe. There's huge pressure for more to enter Western Europe or enter Europe period. Uh, where's this leading? Well, Is there any way think- to know?
1: It's It's
5: gone a bit far. You know, I, I wish this had been addressed a few years ago. It's It's gone a bit far at this point, because now you've got a lot of people who are already in some sort of a very complicated legal appeals process that could take many, many years, and you've got political consequences. What you were alluding to earlier about Germany, that, um, that you know, that the institutions and also the liberal forces in the country uh, were covering up a lot of these crimes and a lot of these problems because they were worried about creating a right-wing backlash. But in fact, their cover-up did exactly that. because now you have people who are quite conservative, quite you know middle of the road, being drawn to the ISD, that's the alternative for Germany, the sort of very nationalist party. You have them having a lot more support than they otherwise would because they're the only party that's speaking directly about this that is announcing these crimes, talking about them allowing a platform to discuss the worries and concerns of the citizens. So the opposite effect was was achieved by that. Now they're talking about, well, what do we do? Uh, we've got to expedite the process, but that's very difficult. Then they tried to have these holding centers where refugees that arrive could be screened and kept there until one ascertains Are these even refugees, and do they have any chance whatsoever of getting asylum here? If they don't, one would have sent them back expeditiously, which is better for everyone, including those people themselves. Uh, That was rejected, again, by the liberal Germans, drawing analogies to camps. Now they're talking about having holding centers in North Africa, uh, which they say will have to be, in order to be respectful to human rights, they'll have to be very nice centers with medical care, education, education. Uh, social services, entertainment facilities, and so on. Well, that's fine. That's, that's good. But think about it. I mean, that will be a magnet to attract people who are living in poverty. They'll say, well, all I need to do is get myself on a rickety boat in the Mediterranean, and I'll be scooped up and taken to a detention center where I'll be taken care of for, for many years, if not forever. It's it's hard to see a good solution right
0: now. Yeah, uh, what about the younger demographic, the younger uh, Europeans? How are they viewing this? Because ultimately, and and not so distantly in the future, it's going to be their problem to address. How do they see it now?
5: So this is where Italy is interesting because actually the the nationalist uh, you know anti-immigrant party in Italy is demographically very heavily weighted towards the young the young people there are saying you know the the existing older politicians and, and their electorate uh, have messed things up and are corrupt, and we need something different and new that's not the only that is not the only uh, part of the platform of this of of this party, but it is a central one
0: is the level of crime and let's go back to the criminal issue because that really is what's caused much of this uh, reaction and this this pushback in in European countries? Is the level of crime decreasing? Is it static or is it increasing?
5: So that is a real hot button issue, and again, the sort of the liberal forces are very intent on trying to find results that show that it's not going up. And I've looked at some of their data, and they do absurd things to change the numbers, like they'll say, well, migrants and, and asylum seekers could not be put in the same category. You have to separate that out and look only at the asylum seekers. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What you're really looking at is the influx of newcomers. Has that affected the security situation? And when you look at it in the whole picture, then you get a very different outcome. Uh, the other problem is you have to, if you want to look at the data, you have to be very specific and look at it state by state because there aren't national results usually until several years later, until the, the central authorities published their crime reports. But there is no doubt that in particular sex-related crimes and then things like uh, physical injuries that usually are things like knife fights among refugees in refugee centers and things like that, um, small armed crimes like armed robberies, um, that those, those are definitely up. And there's a 22% increase in the feeling of insecurity on the part of German citizens, and that's definitely going to make itself noticeable when elections come around.
0: Well, clearly, this is not a situation that's just going to be allowed to tread water. There's going to be a response, reaction, and even if it's just uh, individual countries taking individual positions, which is, will be difficult under the rules of the EU, but then they'll just ignore the EU as as uh, as, as Poland and uh, Hungary seem to be doing. This is a this is a very very. Um, disturbing reality, but it's one that has to be dealt with. uh, Professor Bernard, it's it's good talking to you again. Thank you so much for the time.
5: Anytime. Good luck. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. Professor Cheryl Bernard, Bernard, that's B-E-N-A-R-D, the program director, was the program director for the Initiative for Middle Eastern Youth and the Alternative Strategies Initiative within the Rand Corporation's National Security Research Division. And again, her book, Civil democratic Islam was found in the personal library of Osama bin Laden when he was killed by American forces in Pakistan.
1: The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.